Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Alistair Crozier, the Executive Director of the Council. This podcast is a recording of the webinar launching our report, Normal Service Resumed, Assessing Future Prospects for New Zealand-China Services Trade. The report takes stock of traditional service trade sectors and assesses prospects to expand New Zealand services footprint in areas as diverse as e-commerce, fitness centres and software as a service. Our webinar provided insights from the report author and services trade experts by diving into some thought-provoking questions about the New Zealand-China trade relationship. It's a pleasure today to be partnering with the North Asia Cape to deliver this event and thank you once again for the Cape's strong support as a sponsor for the research project that we'll be focusing on uh, and for co-hosting today's launch. I also acknowledge the other organisations which have made this report possible through their sponsorship, uh, namely ANZ Bank, Christchurch International Airport and Naitahu Holdings. Today our council is releasing a new report, our second for 2022, and this time it has a focus on services trade between New Zealand and China, past, present and future. So three points from me to quickly set the scene. The council chose this focus because services trade is often overlooked. As our report points out, when we think of trade with China, uh, we are more likely to envisage shipments of New Zealand primary produce heading to China and Chinese manufactured goods coming here. In the last 10 years, uh, our services exports, mainly in the tourism and education sectors, um, have contributed up to 25% of our bilateral export revenue to China. Plus, those sectors generate significant indirect economic and other intangible benefits for New Zealand as well that are not captured in direct revenue statistics. So services matter for the New Zealand economy. Uh, and I take this opportunity to acknowledge all service providers that we have here today. Your mahi is awesome, and I think the future is still really bright. Secondly, we were aware that services exports took a big hit during COVID, and I think that comes as no surprise to anyone. As the report points out, most of our large exports are what is known as mode two trade, which means that consumers travel into New Zealand to consume them. So when borders closed in early 2020, uh, I think everyone knows the rest. Through the research, we wanted to answer the what next question for some very significant New Zealand economic sectors with regard to one of their most important export markets. And thirdly, we wanted to shine light on the fact that our service exports to China are diverse and that new market opportunities for our exporters are diverse as well. Many people are aware of Chinese tourists and students uh, coming to New Zealand, but what about our companies doing post-production for Chinese films or selling software as a service to Chinese cinemas or our game developers or our airlines and shipping companies, not to mention an iconic brand like Les Mills, which we will hear a lot more about soon. So China is changing incredibly quickly and digital trade in particular presents constant new horizons for our companies, but also some challenges. So our report covers all of these topics and we're looking forward to sharing it with you. It will be available electronically on our website after this event at nzchinacouncil.org.nz. For now, I'd like to introduce the true experts that we have uh, joining us here today. Stephanie Honey, uh, as you've heard from Charlie, wrote the report. Stephanie is a founder of Honey Consulting, which came after a successful career as a diplomat and trade negotiator with the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. 
We are very lucky to have secured Steph's services as our author, uh, and her research has been thorough and informed. In alphabetical order, we also have Brian G, who is beaming in today from China as CEO Greater China and Korea for Les Mills International. Prior to this role, Brian was CFO, and he's also worked for international and local companies in China, including Coca-Cola, Walt Disney Company, and KPMG. Lisa Lee is Managing Director of China Travel Service New Zealand Limited, a leadership role that she's held for over 20 years after coming to New Zealand as a consumer of New Zealand services exports as an international student. Lisa is also Secretary General of the Chinese Chamber of Commerce in New Zealand and the new co-chair of New Zealand Asian Leaders. And Mulan is Global Program Associate Director in the International Office at the University of Waikato, where she has also worked for many years after studying her MBA there. The University of Waikato, through its Vice-Chancellor, Professor Neil Quigley, is a member of the New Zealand China Council, and we're very pleased that Mulan and Waikato can join us here today. So it's my um, great pleasure to pass over to Stephanie to run through the main research findings. Kia ora, Alistair, and uh, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Stephanie Hani Toko Ingoa. Thanks for that great introduction, Alistair. You've, you've set the scene beautifully, but I would like to start myself by acknowledging not only the New Zealand China Council and uh, the generous sponsors of this report, but also in particular my warmest thanks to all the people that I talked to in putting this report together. The, the final product is of course so much richer for the time, the experiences and the insights you shared. So thank you very much. Um, I've acknowledged those contributors in the, at the end of the report, so please do take a look at that. So let me start by giving a bit of a helicopter view of this services trade landscape. And as you can see, I've put on the slide here a very uh, broad brush view of exports and imports from just before the New Zealand China FTA was, was signed and implemented back in 2008 up to the present day. And as you can see from this picture, we have the, the mountain range, if you like, of exports, which grew very substantially um, and significantly to reach a high of 3.4 billion um, immediately prior to the pandemic and sadly have fallen off a cliff if I can keep the, the landscape metaphor going up to the present day and then a, a much sort of lower scale but steady growth in imports through the period. And I've marked on there the New Zealand-China FTA and the upgrade that, uh, that um, was negotiated earlier this year, because those are two very important pillars of services trade. As we'll hear, um, and as you can see when you read the report, services trade is complex, it's very regulatory in nature, often the opportunities and also the barriers to trade are difficult to discern. And so something like the New Zealand-China FTA and the upgrade provide a very important foundation for that to help provide predictability and transparency and new opportunities um, for exporters. So what is it that we export? As Alistair mentioned, tourism and education are by far and away the lion's share of our export services. About 90% of all of our exports uh, come from those two sectors. And as you can see here, the orange bands of this chart really illustrate that very vividly. We have education, tourism and um, business travel making up about 90% of all of the exports. Um, 
what about those other sectors? Well, there's a there's a saying in services trade policy, which is services is anything you can buy and sell but can't drop on your foot. Um, and as Alistair said, we do have a very diverse range of, of services that we export. So you can see here, transport makes up a very large share of that for both passengers, so human beings, but also freight, and then a very diverse range of other um, sectors and of course subsectors within that, um, notably financial services, other business services, which includes a range of trade-related services, so for example, distribution and, and e-commerce-related services, but also professional services like law, technical services like architecture and engineering, other business services, trade policy consultancy, for example, um, and a host of others um, make up that very diverse range of non-travel services. However, unfortunately, um, as, as everybody will be well aware, the pandemic has had a very severe impact. And we thought it was useful in this report to unpack what exactly that meant. Um, anecdotally, of course, we don't see Chinese tourists or, or many Chinese students in our um, marketplace, but what about the other sectors? And you can see from the chart that I've got on there, China being the red stripe in that, um, contracted very sharply and in fact unfortunately more so than our other two top services markets, the US and Australia, um, largely reflecting the dominance of that mode two services as Alistair said. That's a, a bit of technical jargon essentially meaning people to people intensive services where consumers come to New Zealand. Uh, to consume those services. It's also quite notable to compare what's happened in services trade with our goods profile. And of course, goods exports to China have been kind of the rock star of our trade policy uh, picture for quite a while. And you can see from the pale blue bars there that, um, of course, there's a very impressive trajectory, particularly of primary sector exports leading up to the pandemic. But even through this disrupted pandemic period, services, of course, are going in the other direction. And um, so the question, I guess, now is whether we'll see those services exports re rebound to the earlier trajectory or something different. So let's look in a little bit of detail at the two main services sectors, tourism and education. And as Alistair said, um, unfortunately, with closed borders, effectively, the tap was turned off of Chinese visitors to the market. So you can see here, whether you look in terms of visitor numbers or export returns, this category of other personal travel services, there's been a very sharp decline by over 90%, in fact, 92% um, from 2019 to um, the, the present period, falling over $1.5 billion um, between the start of the pandemic and the present day. Now you can see from the little box um, on the, the right hand side of my screen there that there's been a very, very modest rebound, but I'm sure we'll hear from Lisa Lee later on about some of the rethinking that's going on in the tourism sector to transition perhaps to a more high value, uh, different demographic, but also reshaping in terms of environmental and, and sort of social sustainability, perhaps through more digital channels and so on. But uh, look forward to hearing what Lisa has to say about that. Now on the other major, tourist, uh, major export sector education, this has fared a bit better, which is not to say that uh, the sector has had a good time through the pandemic, but it's only contracted by 44%. And two reasons for that. Some Chinese students have been able to remain in New Zealand, but also providers have been able to pivot and, and use more innovative technologies to continue to export. Um, so 
digital delivery, online delivery has been a main feature of that. But as the report explores, and I'm sure we'll also hear from Mulan, who was another person I interviewed um, later on in the panel discussion, um, institutions have really put their thinking caps on and come up with new ways to deliver services and education through, for instance, study centres in China, even in some cases being able to recruit new students through this pandemic period. But of course, um, there are some major challenges and perhaps a less promising trajectory um, for the next few years. Our major competitors, such as the US, the UK, Australia and Canada, opened up before we did and have gone a long way towards wooing um, Chinese students back again through, for example, um, more speedy visa processes and, and post-study work rights. So there are some big challenges there and also a big question mark about whether digital delivery can continue. Now, as for other sectors, transport is an, an absolutely essential enabler, and I heard that from a lot of the people I talked to, whether we're talking about um, maritime transport, so shipping, cargo shipping, or um, air transport for both people and air freight. Um, you can see there from the chart that unfortunately exports of transport services took a big hit through the pandemic, and at the same time, imports have grown significantly, which has obviously helped keep goods trade going, um, but also reflects some of the very high prices of, of transport services at the moment. Um, but I did hear consistently that getting those transport um, services back up and running, including um, through all markets into, into China, um, all ports at least I should say, is absolutely key to future resilience, both of goods trade, but also to enable those other important relationships education and tourism exports, but also the broader and deeper business relationship. Um, I heard consistently that relationships are really key and that needs on the ground contact. In other sectors, the performance was mixed. As you can see just from this quick snapshot, um, some very stellar performances, but not consistent. And some sectors really um, perhaps not delivering huge export returns. But at the same time, one of the very interesting findings was that there are some amazing niche exporters across the, the broad range of services sectors, whether, as Alistair mentioned, we're talking about Les Mills, um, the film and television sector, e-commerce. Um, you can see down at the bottom there, Weta Workshop designed the Museum of Traditional Chinese Medicine in Guangdong province. Um, that, that picture of a spaceship, obviously there's potential for space, space travel services, but that's in fact a picture from a very successful video game designed by Rocketworks, um, which is partly uh, owned by Tencent, the largest gaming company in the world, a really positive partnership happening there. So I encourage you to look at the case studies in the report. There are some really interesting stories. Another really key thing that came out is the unrealized potential for imports. China is itself a really major services exporter now, but that's not really reflected in the trade. And you can see, as with New Zealand's non-travel services, a pretty mixed picture and performance, partly due to data suppression and confidentiality in both cases, but also reflecting a, a rather uneven pattern of, of exports from China into New Zealand. Now, the period ahead is likely to include some really significant headwinds for services exporters. Obviously, COVID continues, um, and there are some big question marks over the duration of China's zero COVID policy. Uh, there's stormy weather in the global economy, but also in China's own growth, forecast to be a mere 2.8% this year, whereas last year it had GDP growth of 8.1%, and uh, a pretty uneven 
uh, forecast for the future as well. And lastly, services trade continues to be beset by regulatory impediments of all sorts and disguised protectionism. It's often hard to know what the rules are and what the barriers are, and that will continue to be a challenge for all services exporters. So how do we resume normal service? Well, I've touched on tourism and education, um, largely dependent on both the agility and innovation of New Zealand services providers, but also the regulatory environment they're operating in in China. Um, there are some great new opportunities in the upgraded FTA, um, certainly in niche sectors, but definitely worth taking a look at. And some key messages as well. Relationships matter. One of my interviewees told me that you just can't do China on Zoom. You need to go there. And that's something that I heard consistently. Another really important message is that the digital economy offers huge promise, but it's also highly complex, often opaque, and can be very heavily restricted, particularly around handling data and cross-border data flows. What does that mean for exporters? Well, there's potential to sell your services digitally, but you really need to be careful about how you do that and perhaps get professional advice in the market as well. And lastly, I heard very consistently huge ups to the New Zealand government for negotiating the FTA and the upgrade, but also to New Zealand agencies, including MFAT, NZTE, Tourism New Zealand, Education New Zealand. They really help exporters in the market, provide strong support, good awareness, um, but also they play a really important enabling role in deepening regulatory conversations and ultimately regulatory coherence to make life easier for services exporters. That's it from me, Alistair, back to you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, um, Stephanie. And like your report, that was um, concise and clear and extremely helpful. So, um, you know, do look at the report because it, uh, as, as well as opinions on the way forward, it is an excellent reference guide into the last 20 years of, of services export trends. And maybe some of those early years rather than the last couple of years uh, provide the hint about what's to come for New Zealand, China in future. So I'd like to get straight into a question to uh, Mulan on the education sector. Stephanie pointed out that the relative lesser decline in, in education ex service exports um, to China was partly because of innovation uh, that our providers have been taking, in particular moving quickly to online delivery and, and setting up physical study centres for students that are still in China. As we move past COVID eventually, do you think this will become a, a hardwired part of, of the education sector's approach to the China market, or are we just seeing a phase uh, pending resumption of normal mode two travel of students into New Zealand? Thanks, Alistair, for the question. I think that's a very uh, good question for us to think about as well. It depends on a few factors as far as I see, because um, many of you would know that actually kind of under normal circumstances, online delivery or qualification obtained from online studies are not really well recognized in China. So for people wanting to work in the public sector in China, their qualification needs to be authenticated or endorsed by CSCSE. And then if the online component exceeds more than 10% at the moment or actually kind of under normal circumstances. Those are not really recognized. However, under the global pandemic circumstances, uh, Chinese government MOE has actually kind of made special arrangements saying during the global pandemic, online studies are recognized 
if it's such a kind of switch to online because you are not able, students are not able to travel to overseas institutions to study, those are actually kind of allowed under special circumstances. So it really depends on how the government may actually kind of change or actually kind of decide to do post-COVID, whether they keep recognizing online studies or whether they will move back to their original state saying, okay, online studies are no longer recognized. So that's a kind of deciding factor. On the other hand, I do also see it depends on students' preferences as well, because we are also trying to kind of investigating at this stage about students' preferences, because we are starting to see two extremes to, speak, uh, to start with. Some students are really keen to get back to New Zealand ASAP. They're saying, okay, once we get the visa, we want to get into New Zealand as soon as possible. But we are also kind of seeing trends from the parents and students saying, oh, we're not so sure about the global pandemic circumstances. We're not so sure about how COVID is going to develop in New Zealand. And we want to just kind of, you know, keep waiting for maybe one trimester or two trimesters. In the meanwhile, we want to continue the online studies. So those are the another kind of, you know, factor deciding whether we are actually kind of continue or not. Uh, in the long, I think in the short to medium term, I think there's still room for online studies, but for the long run, it really depends on the government policies and also kind of students' intentions, whether they want to keep the online mode. Sure, thank you. Well, as Stephanie said in her report, um, government regulations in China around some of these issues really do matter for our service exporters. Um, but congratulations on everything Waikato and other providers, especially tertiary providers, have achieved over the last couple of years so quickly. Just um, to mix things up, moving away from our traditional large sectors to some of that diversity we mentioned, I'd like to bring Brian in, representing uh, Les Mills. Brian, just very quickly, for people who are not aware, how's Les Mills been tracking in, in the last few years up in China? How did, what did you have to do to pivot during, during the COVID period? And I guess as a second question is, we've heard a bit about the, the digital challenges that our exporters sometimes face. What challenges did Les Mills uh, face uh, in your sector and, and how did you overcome those over the last couple of years? Thank you, Alistair, for the question. Since Les Mills established the business uh, in China in 2014, uh, we have made some great progress in China. Uh, so far today, we have been working with uh, over 2,000 uh, gym and clubs in China. Uh, we have trained and certified close to 10,000 instructors in China. Uh, about half million Les Mills fans taking Les Mills classes on a weekly basis. And there are about 3 million uh, social media fans following our page in China. So we're definitely one of the most well-known Les Mills brand in China today. Uh, talking about digitalization, uh, China is a very, very digital-led society. So digitalization definitely has been a, a key part of our strategy. Uh, we started, really started late last year. And uh, we have been working with some uh, big platform uh, licensing our digital content and including uh, Miku, which is a part of China Mobile. Uh, so uh, they are the China's number one uh, sports live streaming platform. And also we have been working with Huawei uh, Fitness app, put our program on their app. And we have been also working with some OTT platforms such as TCL and Haixin. Those are probably uh, two you know, world's biggest TV, IPTV makers. Uh, so those are all big platforms. 
Other than that, we are also trying to do some local innovations. Uh, this year, we launched uh, uh, we call it a smart fitness, a virtual fitness uh, box, and that really help us to penetrate into the other segments beyond the traditional channel like gyms and clubs, uh, so that we can satisfy our users in other occasions, uh, such as hotels, corporate, and also at schools, and also as well at home. I think there are definitely some challenges that we're facing. Uh, from commercial standpoint, I think it's still a fairly young market. Uh, although the growth is pretty high, the user habits, I think a lot of people are still not willing to pay for the online or not, not used to paying for the online content. So that's definitely one of the uh, challenge. So we really need to stay uh, patient. Uh, but working with a big platform really gives us a lot of brand visibility. And secondly, uh, I think it's really about system infrastructure. Because we're a global company, so we have global system. But we also, as we know, in China, we have a very, you know, Chinese people live really live on the mobile apps. So everything goes by mobile. Uh, so in order to uh, really help to improve our user experience and really adapt to the China market, so we have to develop the local system. But because we also wanted to maintain the level of the transparency and, and the need for the global reporting. So we, we kind of build our own China's data warehouse so that we can synchronize the data between local and global system. And certainly kind of related to that, I think China issued the data privacy law uh, late last year, which brought another dimension of challenge. It's still early at the stage, at this stage. So it's still a little bit, you know, we're still monitoring the situation. Uh, but I think that also brings another dimension of challenge to our business. Great, thank you. I was just going to ask about data privacy and, and those new laws and regulations. So thank you for covering those. And congratulations on everything that Les Mills has achieved in the market. It's, it's phenomenal that another New Zealand brand is established in China in this way, outside, thank you. outside big primary produce exporters. Lisa, I've got to come over to another of our big uh, heavy-hitting sectors, the tourism sector. Uh, and as Stephanie said, this is probably the, the one that has taken the biggest hit uh, since 2020 for reasons that are well known to all of us. So um, back before COVID, you know, we were touching 400,000 Chinese tourists traveling to New Zealand each year. I mean, we know we know Chinese tourists will begin to return to New Zealand, but do you think we will ever get back to those levels again or, or will we exceed them or are we looking at a at a different scenario moving forward now? Here are Toto Katura. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this research and this, today's uh, panel discussion. If you raise this question to me in the middle of pandemic uh, of 2020, I would be very confident to say it would only take maybe a couple of years to return to the pre-COVID level. However, due to the COVID being so prolonged, the situation is getting much more complicated. On the one hand, the global economic downturn and the inflation will be shrinking people's disposable income. On the other hand, the constraints of the supplier side would adversely impact the speed of the recovery. For example, during the peak season pre-pandemic, there were 69 direct flights from New Zealand to a number of the major Chinese cities per week. Now, 
there are only six direct services per week. It would also take the time for hospitality suppliers to have enough staff to regain full capacity. The good news I would like to share with you is, first, even though the Chinese economic growth has been slowing, our targeted market sector is middle class with a higher education, higher income, and better savings, who have been kicked in reasonably good shape. Second, those active considerers from China who have put New Zealand in their backlist are still considering New Zealand as their dream destination due to our country's positive image, our good relationship with China, and our renowned KV hospitality. Third, key travel specialists in China are still in the industry. We shouldn't take this for granted, but in the past three years, the Tourism New Zealand China team and the tour operator like us, CTS, have maintained efforts to engage both Chinese consumers and the travel agents network in spite of the, all the challenges and difficulties. Thanks, Lisa. Um, yeah, your first point about uh, flights. I, I've been grappling with this um, question of, it's like a chicken and egg question, which comes first, the, the flights or the, or the tourist demand? Um, so how do you break that cycle? We probably should be asking an airline or an airport this question, but um, what are your thoughts on how you start rebuilding the transport services? Well, it is really a chicken and egg question, and uh, I believe that uh, actually it, it's not also wouldn't happen overnight. It will always take time for planning. So it's really the, uh, it's really important for forecasting and the trend. So they, uh, I believe, all those uh, airlines are keep very close eye on the trend, and then they can actually planning in advance. Sure. Thank you. Um, guys, we have a few questions from the floor, so I'm going to start working through them. A couple are in uh, Stephanie's area, quite technical, I guess, Steph. The first one is, how do we track service export value from New Zealand to China? What, what's the, the method that we use to measure the value? Uh, and if I can throw in a quick second one, specifically around a mention or, or perhaps lack of mention of environmental services. and. And what is that a category of itself, or where does that fit in? And this is this is from someone who's who's worked in this area for a few decades. So those are those are two technical questions for Steph. Thank you, Alistair. Well, you know, you know me. I love the getting into the nitty gritty detail, but I will spare the the listeners of this webinar from too much of the technicalities. Suffice it to say that on the the question about how we measure uh, the services exports, that is actually a great question. It's really difficult and the tools that we have to do it, you know, Stats New Zealand does a great job, but there are only certain ways to, to try to measure it, which probably don't truly reflect the economic value of the exports. But there's a big discussion in the report about some of those technicalities, how these figures are arrived at, some different methodologies that are used. Uh, suffice it to say, I think that all the numbers that are quoted in the report really kind of undervalue the size of the services sector, the services that are integrated into goods exports, 
the the intangible benefits that you mentioned yourself, Alistair, at the beginning, and and that that Charlie Gao also mentioned of of the benefits that you know a little bit harder to measure in, in monetary terms, but really deliver significant benefits to New Zealand. So uh, I'll leave that question there. On environmental services, that's a great question. And in fact, it's one of the areas where the new upgraded FTA has some new market access opportunities. It's one of those other business services. So it's a kind of a technical service that's captured in that figure. But you know, hopefully we'll see some growth in that sector now with new opportunities opened up by the FTA. But just if I may, Alistair, a very quick comment on environmental sustainability overall. Um, services are, you know, generally seen as being uh, having a lower environmental impact, a sort of a lower carbon footprint, if you like, um, than than goods trade. And um, that's certainly true in general. Although I guess for our tourism and and education exports, there is a sort of a, a, an air travel component to those. But, you know, it's one area where I think there's huge potential to grow the relationship. New Zealand has some expertise in that sector. China has um, a lot of demand. And I think that there's, that's one of the areas where we might see in the next few years a real growth in exports um, for sort of mutual benefit. Great. Thank you. Mulan, I'm going to come back to you uh, for another question about education. I mean, everyone has been talking about the, the wide benefits uh, that goes beyond direct export revenue uh, to, to our providers uh, that come from hosting students here. Um, Stephanie's research also suggested that our New Zealand's reputation as an education provider might have slipped down the rankings a little bit over the last um, couple of years. How do you think New Zealand is, is perceived uh, in the China market right now as an education provider and destination? And um, what could we do to improve that image? Yeah, that's also kind of a very good question to, uh, to work on because I agree with Stephanie's finding. Basically, the New Zealand ranking as the most desired uh, education destination is actually kind of you know, sliding uh, the ranking a little bit. Because in the past, we would uh, be confident in saying New Zealand is certainly in the top 10 choices for Chinese students. But recently, especially kind of I noticed a uh, report from JJL, one of the largest uh, agencies in China. China. They are actually kind of sharing information about the preferred destination for students to choose when they go overseas to study. New Zealand is probably at the moment number 12 on the list. So, uh, of course, apart from the traditional uh, education destination, mainly the English-speaking countries, there are also new names, including destinations in Europe as well as other Asian countries. So that is actually kind of presenting a lot of challenges for the New Zealand education providers. I think overall speaking, New Zealand is still attractive because it has been actually kind of, you know, well known for its kind of nice environment, people being friendly and also kind of, you know, being innovative and high quality of education because all the New Zealand universities are in the top 500 or, uh, or uh, in the QS ranking. So basically that's still kind of those points actually kind of remaining. But in order to be just kind of 
keeping that attractiveness. I think we do need to just kind of work harder in a number of areas. For instance, like they kind of being competitive in the opportunities for the international students, uh, including but not not limited to post study work visa uh, work rights, as well as kind of you know visa processes, and also kind of you know being able to provide more opportunities for the international students coming here as well. So those are the kind of you know key areas I see because I see I do see a lot of kind of other countries are actually kind of pro presenting a lot of different things to the international students, trying to attract the students to study over there. So that's probably where I can see from now to just kind of maintain the attractiveness and competitiveness of New Zealand as an education destination. Great, thank you. And yeah, that's that's consistent with some of the, the findings in the report as well around how we how we keep moving upwards. Lisa, in, in terms of tourists and, and, and New Zealand as a tourism destination, I guess it's a slightly different range of factors. But do you still see New Zealand right up there as, as a preferred destination for Chinese tourists when they do start returning. And I guess the related question is, uh, what are they looking for these days? I, I know from a little bit of tracking the domestic market, uh, you have a lot more independent travellers renting camper vans and, and going off on quite adventurous travel, ditching the, the flag and the caps of the, of the group tourism. What, what do you think Chinese tourists will want when they do start to flow back into New Zealand? Firstly, quite confident that uh, we are still stay on the top of their bucket list, and uh, it was really fortunate for for, for New Zealand. And uh, uh, in terms of the um, trend for the future uh, visitors, Chinese visitors, and we actually it is notable that changes in the consumer behavior and consumption preference had begun even even before the pandemic and to be more pre precise chinese consumer behavior and their consumption pre preference have kept evolving since the early 2000s and i think the what you actually describe is the uh, kind of a stereotyping <laughs> so the i i actually see that chinese visitors not only move to see i i can i did I, I see, you know, they did say that can I see and the coach buses and doing a lot of sightseeing tours. But now they said, you know, before the pandemic, they more doing more activities and more interactive, even soft adventures. And so that's actually they quite proud to tell their uh, when they back to country and tell their friends and relatives that I went to New Zealand, but I did a lot of stuff. So the experience is really, really important. As Brian has shared previously, the Chinese internet users have surpassed 900 million. By 2030, there will be 1 billion Chinese living in the city, and half of them will live in the five super cities soon. And furthermore, according to the data analysis, Generation Z now make up the bulk of the tourists. This young traveler's consumption distributed on tourism is disproportionately higher. Their budget on tourism is about one third of their income. So the population of GZ is more than 250 million. And they are called the digital native natives or people of the internet. And they rely on their mobile phones for south information, making bookings, and most importantly, sharing experience. 
So we actually are fortunate to return our fresh thinking and uh, innovating uh, marketing team. And uh, we have engaged on our, our Chinese customers uh, even during the pandemic, where our WeChat official accounts, short video, live streaming, and little write book uh, posts. So it is really hard to imagine that now you're interacting with the Chinese tourism market with all those digital tours. I think we were seeing that trend even before COVID as well. It's funny, I, I had a staff member when I worked in China and one of her bucket list things when she came to New Zealand, um, apart from Hobbiton and, and Queenstown, was, was to go to a Les Mills fitness class because she took the classes in China and, and couldn't believe that she could go to the original. So talk about uh, brand brand development, Brian, it's, and, and you know, tourists wanting to do different things that perhaps we hadn't thought of and how we cater to that. But I would like to come back to Brian again, picking up this whole sort of pivot digital and online, which as we know has, has been there for a long time. In terms of your customers, where that became a necessity during lockdowns, do you see eventually your customers moving back into physical gyms and fitness centers? Or do you think that this idea of accessing uh, fitness support services at home will, will be something that now really becomes the norm in, in China once people know that it can be done and that your product is, is very high quality? Well, I think all belief is uh, all fans will go back to gyms because we feel that's the uh, the main avenue for fitness. And let's me is always about good fitness. So I think we are kind of in motivation business. So so we want people to go back to the gym and have people become more motivated. The one thing that, that, that we found from the, the data running the digital program is that people usually when they exercise at home, usually, you know, their workout does, does not last more than 30 minutes, but our, our offline classes usually takes about 55 minutes. Uh, so I think that's an interesting piece of data. And the other thing is, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we're very confident uh, that the, the COVID restriction, I mean, the COVID uh, probably won't behind us and may, may, may sustain this like a fruit. But I think the COVID restriction policy will be behind us, uh, even though it has lasted for three years. But I think simply for the fact that, I mean, this policy just cannot sustain. And the economy has to grow and people just have, have to move on and live normal life. Uh, so we, we are very confident that, you know, people will go back to, to gym. People are already going back to the gym. It's just because of the restriction. So the attendance level has not gone back to the pre-COVID uh, level. And the other big picture is, I, I think China fitness market is a big, it's already the, one of the biggest fitness market in the world uh, in terms of value, uh, but in terms of fitness population, uh, the penetration level is still fairly low in, compar in comparison to US and UK. It's probably at one fourth of the more mature market level. So we feel like there's still an enormous room for growth. So I think, uh, you know, absolutely the offline uh, gym clubs, those uh, will still be the main avenue for, for fitness and workout. Brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, the, um, the online versus offline data is very consistent with my own um, practice, I have to say. Look, we, I think we have time for one more question. And there was another one from the floor. And it said about tech exports that were mentioned, why um, when the government has identified tech exports as a high priority, is NZ Tech on the whole 
not seizing the opportunity in the China market compared to, say, Australia, where they seem to, to see that because some of the, the issues that have tended to be at front and centre, like IP risk and so on, is, is certainly not exclusive just to China. So I might bravely throw that one for Steph. First of all, just in terms of your general uh, research to, into exports to China, and then Brian may also have a comment or, or any of our other panellists. Thanks, Alistair. Well, it's a great question. I think if we sort of put aside e-commerce for physical goods trade and just simply look at digitally delivered services, essentially, if you look at the trade statistics, and there's a section on this in the report, we have in the past exported quite a lot of digital services to China, and also it's possible to see through charges for the use of intellectual property, which um, includes software licensing, for example, that has also been high. In fact, both of those really peaked back in 2017. But we've seen quite a steep drop off since then. And I think there are a few reasons for that. Firstly, if services trade is hard to count, well, digital services trade is very hard to count. So I think there's probably quite a lot of digital delivery of services that's happening that is difficult to sort of measure in the trade statistics. But also within the tech sector itself, I think a lot of it does come down to this extremely restrictive and challenging regulatory environment. So there's a discussion about this in the report as well by a measure that the OECD has developed um, to measure restrictiveness, uh, regulatory restrictiveness on digital services trade. Unfortunately, China is, is quite considerably more restrictive than many other economies, including New Zealand. And this applies not just to tech companies, but also to any company that handles, for instance, personal data, so customer data and so on in China that is dealing with, for instance, other categories of sensitive data, including financial data, restrictions around cybersecurity. These all are relatively restrictive or at least difficult and include a lot of high compliance costs. So I think that's quite a disincentive for companies to, even though China has this incredibly vibrant digital market, um, you know, lots of extremely enthusiastic digital consumers, um, there should be huge potential there, but it's it's just a really challenging environment to operate in. So um, I'd love to see more in that space, but I think you know there are some great examples of companies like Rocketworks, which is featured in a case study, um, a really fantastic, innovative company that has partnered up with Tencent um, and, and benefited from the investment of Tencent to scale globally. And, and other partnerships are also possible, but because of the, the challenging environment, it's, um, you know, I think a lot of companies are taking a pretty cautious approach. Thank you. And I, you also mentioned in your report that this could be an area where governments could continue talking to each other uh, about uh, liberalisation. And if I may just sort of quickly add, sorry, Alistair, I should have said China has also applied to join this new digital first trade agreement that New Zealand's involved with, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. And if China is able to meet the, the very high standards in that for things like cross-border data flows, I think that would really open up that market to New Zealand exporters. It would be a great outcome. Thanks, Stephanie. Brian, do you have any quick um, thoughts on uh, on New Zealand tech exports to China? Is, it, uh, is, is there potential or, or are the challenges that Stephanie's outlined um, too great? Um, I think one of the sort of unique, uh, maybe a unique challenge to Les Mill is because um, Les Mill in essence is an IP company. So I think in, in China's uh, sort of more ambiguous legal environment, 
I think IP privacy is something that <laughs> that that's probably a, a will. It's becoming a constant issue to us, especially when you're talking about digital world. Uh, let's me release the some new program on a quarterly basis. So every time before we officially <laughs> release the program, usually you already see the, the content online, already spread it or disseminated online. And interestingly, we find it's usually coming actually <laughs> offshore uh, somewhere. Maybe some program you know have been already released in other country, so it's easily disseminated or spread to to China. So I think that's the uh, something that really unique to our business. But I think overall, I think it's it's very encouraging. I think uh, the legal enforcement, uh, you know, in terms of privacy law, everything has been the, the overall environment has been uh, improving. So we haven't won a lot of uh, cases uh, fighting against uh, the privacy. Thank you. Um... We're almost at the hour mark, uh, and so sadly we're going to have to wrap things up at this point. It leads me to thank again the North Asia Centre of Asia-Pacific Excellence for co-hosting us today uh, and supporting the research project generally, uh, and again to ANZ Bank, Naitahu Holdings and Christchurch Airport for your support. Big thanks to Stephanie, Brian, Lisa and Mulan uh, for giving your time and sharing your insights. I, I just feel it's one of those occasions where we've just scratched the surface of your respective expertise and we, we could have done a series of one-on-ones with, with each of you. If you'd like to read the report, uh, please visit our website nzchinacouncil.org.nz. You can click on uh, initiatives and under that you'll see our publications. And um, This is the latest one. Many thanks to all our panellists for your insights and to the North Asia Centre of Asia Pacific Excellence for co-hosting the webinar. For more podcasts, please follow us on Apple Podcast, SoundCloud and Spotify or check out our website nzchinacouncil.org.nz. Thanks for listening.